the cure really doesn't mean much if we don't think ourselves to be gravely ill. But today on Graceful Truth, we'll take a look at just how gravely ill we are, that that cure might be all the more glorious. Paul tells us at times it's like looking at a mirror, and the minute we turn away, we forget what we look like. That's the way it is with sin more often than not, and that's why we're spending so much time in our series, Guilty as Charged. Welcome to Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse, who again takes us back to the book of Romans as we focus in on the guilt that is a part of you and I, a part of everyone just how bad that guilt really is and what the price for that guilt is. That allows us then to take a look at the answer and the cure in all of its glory. Join us. Here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast. All right, we can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to continue in our study through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, and I just want to read... For us, before we actually uh, get into the text, I, I want to read for us the, the text the Scripture we'll be looking at today. Uh, we're in a three, three-part three series, Guilty is Charged, and there'll probably be part four and five, I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, we're work, working our way, wandering our way through the, the text of Scripture here in Romans chapter 3. And I just want to read the first uh, couple verses, beginning in verse 9 of our text for this morning. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What then are... Are we any better off? No, not at all. For as we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, there is none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. I'm going to stop there because that's basically where we're going to stop today. Last week, we looked at the doctrine of total depravity. The idea that in and of ourselves, we have nothing of any value to offer to God. That's a hard doctrine for a lot of people. It's a hard doctrine for me to understand. uh, And I don't totally understand it other than know that I know myself and I know that I'm a sinner and uh, of a depraved nature and will and everything else. Um, and there were some questions last week after the, after the message, good questions, I want to let you know. Um, and so I, I thought in light of last week's questions, I just want to spend a little bit of time in way of introduction this morning to make sure that we have a good uh, footing, a good foundation upon which we can continue on with the text. Um, last week, I mentioned at the beginning of the service uh, two two men, Martin Luther and uh, Erasmus, and they basically came at the whole idea of the question about the will, because this question comes up. Are you saying that we don't have a will? Are we saying that we don't have a free will? Is our will free? Um, and I looked at those two men and uh, mentioned what they, they put out. Luther put out a study called The Bondage of the Will, saying that the will is not free, it's bound by sin. And he put that out in opposition to Erasmus' book, his his study, his thesis, on the freedom of the will. 
saying that, no, 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 that's wrong. You know, our, our wills are free. We can do whatever we want. Well, this week I've been studying Jonathan Edwards, who's another fine uh, theologian and preacher of his day. And he wrote a treatise on this subject. And the treatise is called this, A Careful and Strict Inquiry into the prevailing notions of the freedom of the will. And I thought, what a clever way to title this little treatise that he came up with. Because the title does not specifically state that Edwards was asserting that our wills are free, only that he was going to investigate it. That he was going to look at the different ideas about this idea of the freedom of the will. And it's not by chance, I think, that Edwards titled it that way to come up with words that were basically the opposite of what Luther's treatise was to gain people's interest in what he had to say. In the end, Edwards did come out, Jonathan Edwards came out on the same side as Luther and all the other biblical theologians before him. But along the way, he made some observations. And I want to share these observations with you because I think they're just brilliant. And they, they, they lay down a, a foundation upon, for me personally, as I studied through this, that it answered a lot of questions for me. So it's kind of fresh for me, and I hope it'll be, it'll be fresh for you as well. Um, he came up with basically three different things that he wanted to look at. He wanted to look at the definition of the will. He wanted to look at the motives, and then he also wanted to look at man's moral inability to deal with the whole idea of choosing anything. And so, in way of introduction this morning, I just want to share with you a couple points from Jonathan Edwards' treatise on this subject. And the first item there, it's up on the screen, it should be, it's not in your, your bullet, or not in your notes, but was the definition that he gave. The definition. Because it's very important to understand the first thing that Edwards did was he had to define what is the will. We throw that term around, oh, do you have a free will or is it bound? Well, what is the will? What are we talking about? And no one had ever done this previously. Luther didn't do it. Erasmus didn't do it. Augustine. Everybody had operated on the simple assumption that we all know what the will is. And if we had to define the will, we would say, well, we call the will that mechanism in us that makes choices. That's what we would say. Well, he said, I don't think that's right. Matter of fact, he came up with a different definition. He said, the definition of the will is that by which the mind chooses anything. He said, well, isn't that the same thing? It's really not. It's really not. And I want to explain that to you. They may not seem like there's a lot of difference there, but there's a major one. Because according to Edwards, what we choose is not determined by the will itself. It's not determined by the will itself as if it were something separate onto itself. It doesn't work that way. It's not determined what we choose by the will itself, but by the mind. I mean, if you just think about it logically, you're going, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And that means our our choices are determined by what we think is most desirable. 
what we think is the most, the best course of action. That's how we make decisions. I mean, it's pretty basic. But so many times we think of the will as being something in and of itself, and it's not. It's subject to the mind. When you make decisions, where are you going to go buy gas? What do you do? Oh, my will wants me to go here. No. You look at the gas app you have, Gas Buddy or whatever, and you say, where's the cheapest, right? And is it, is it within driving distance? It doesn't make it, you know, I'm not going to drive 50 miles to save a couple pennies. And then you go and you fill up your tank. But your mind makes the decision. Your will makes that decision based upon what your mind tells it to do. So I, I, I like that definition. The will is that by which the mind chooses anything. Kind of opens it up. The second thing that Jonathan Edward covered in his, his treatise was this, and I think this is just brilliant too. He called it motives. And he asked this simple question. Here's what he said. Why is it that the mind chooses one thing rather than another? Do you ever think about that? Why do you choose one thing over another? His answer was this. The mind chooses as it does because of motive. That's why we make decisions. Based on motive. The mind isn't neutral, beloved. It thinks that some things are better than others. Would you agree with that? And because it thinks that way, it always chooses the better things. If a person thought one course of action would be more beneficial than the other, he thought this course of action would be more beneficial for his family than this course of action, he would choose the one that would be the best course of action based upon what he knows about the facts. If you run into somebody that says, well, I know this is the better course of action, but I'm going to go this way because it's not. They're irrational. Would you agree? You know, we even, when you carry that to an extent, when people make decisions that are totally irrational, things that are, that are totally always not beneficial, you tend to think they're a little nuts. They're insane. Why would somebody do that? So, his question was, does this mean that the will is bound? Someone asked me a couple weeks ago, well, you said we don't have a free will. And I said, well, it's bound to sin. We're a slave of sin. That's how we're described before we come to Christ. That's what the Bible says. We're slaves to sin. But I like his treatise because it just lays it out. And it lays it out in a way that really makes sense. What he says is this. Does this mean that the will is bound then? He says quite the contrary. Stay with me. It means that the will is free. It's always free. That is, it's free to choose. And it will always choose what the mind thinks is best. But what does the mind think is best? See, here we get, pardon the pun, to the heart of the problem, the heart of the issue. 
as it involves choosing God. Stay with me on this. When we are confronted with God, the mind of the sinner never thinks that the way of God is a good course. That's what Scripture says. The will is free to choose God. Nothing is stopping it. But the mind does not regard submission to God and serving God as being desirable. Therefore, what does it do? Instead of choosing God, it turns from God. Even when the gospel is presented by the most eloquent person. Have you ever been in a situation where you're sharing the gospel with somebody and you're kind of fumbling over your words and you're thinking, man, I just wish Ray Comfort was here to help me or, or somebody of that stature and surely this person would get saved if they were here. It doesn't matter about that. Because the human mind, the human heart will always turn from God even when the gospel is presented in the most winsome way. I don't know about you, but that takes a big burden off me. The heart turns from God, the mind turns from God because of what we saw back in Romans chapter 1. The mind does not want to do what God, who is sovereign, wants it to do. It does not consider the righteousness of God to be a way to personal happiness or personal fulfillment or anything. It doesn't want to be subject to that. It does not want its true, sinful nature exposed to everybody. I mean, obviously the mind is wrong in those judgments. The way it chooses is actually the way of alienation, the way of misery. The Bible says the end of that way leads to what? Death. But human beings, in our own logic, think sin to be the best way. Therefore, unless God changes the way we think with our minds, which, by the way, he does, by the miracle of the new birth, unless he does that, our minds always tell us to turn from God. And so we turn from God. Just like Romans 1 says. So you have here the definition, you have the motive, and then the third thing he goes over in his treatise, which is also equally brilliant, he talks about moral inability. Moral inability. I mean, why the will never chooses God? Ask yourself that question. Even though it's free to do so, It concerns motive. It concerns this third thing, moral inability, which is responsibility. See, this is what really troubled Pelagius in his treatise. He couldn't figure this out. And here Edwards wisely distinguishes between what he called the natural inability and what he termed the moral inability. And he gives this illustration. In the natural world, there are animals which eat nothing but meat. What do we call them? Carnivores. Caro, carnis, means meat. 
There are other animals that eat nothing but vegetation. What do we call them? Herbivores. And, and it comes from herba, which means vegetables. Imagine somehow that we captured a lion, a carnivore, and that we placed a big bale of hay or a, 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 a trough of, of oats in front of the lion. He will not eat the hay and he won't eat the oats. Why not? Because he's physically or naturally unable to eat them? Can he open his mouth and eat them? Could he do that? Yeah, he could. Physically. Physically, he could munch on the oats, he could munch on the hay and swallow them. But he does not, and he will not. He'd most likely starve to death before he'd eat that. Because it's not in his nature to eat this kind of food. Now, somehow, if you could become Dr. Doolittle and be able to talk to this lion, and if you could ask the lion, why you would not eat the herbivore's meal of hay and oats, and somehow the lion could communicate to you, he would say this, I cannot eat this food because I hate it. I will only eat meat. Kind of like some of your kids at dinner time when they're looking at Brussels sprouts or something like that. And you say, that's kind of a silly illustration. It's kind of a silly illustration until you come to see the words that our Lord used. The words that God used in the Old Testament. In Psalm 34, 8, it says this, beloved, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus himself said in John 6, 51, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of this bread, he will live forever. So you, it begs the question, why will a sinful man or woman not taste and see that the Lord is good or feed upon this living bread that Jesus has to offer? Why won't they do it? To use the lion's words, it's because he hates it. He hates the food. The sinner will not come to Christ because he does not want to. It's not because... He cannot come physically. We see people who exercise their own will and raise a hand or walk, a, walk an aisle and, and so-called come to Christ. We all know people like that. And now their life's in disarray. There's no transformation at all, but they, they hold on to that decision that they made because they came physically. Now, there's a lot of people that would say, well, that's kind of extreme. I don't know if I hold to that teaching, and you may even have some objections to that. Because the Bible surely does say that anyone who will come to Christ may come to him. Jesus did invite us to come, did he not? Didn't he say, whoever comes to me, I will never, what, no way cast out? John six thirty seven. That's exactly what Jesus said. But you know what, beloved? It's beside the point. Anyone who wants to come to Christ may come to him. That is why Jonathan Edwards insisted that the will is not bound. The fact that we may come to him is what makes our refusal to seek God so unreasonable. 
And it literally increases our guilt before God. But who is it who wills to come? That's the key question. Who is it that wills to come? You know what the answer is? No one. No one. Except those whom the Holy Spirit has already performed the irresistible work of the new birth. So that as a result of that miracle, their spiritual eyes, which have been blinded, are opened. And for the first time, they can see God's truth. And their totally depraved mind, which in itself has no spiritual understanding whatsoever, is renewed. And it embraces the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is not a new doctrine. This is something that's been around for years, long before any of us have ever been here. It's the purest, it's the most basic form of the doctrine of man, and it's embraced by most Protestants and even Catholics. They may not even know that they honestly believe that, but they do. The Westminster Catechism says this, the sinfulness of that state wherein two man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin. The want of that righteousness wherein he was created and the corruption of his nature whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil and that continually. I suppose that at this point there's some people who would raise some objections to this. And maybe even somewhat reluctantly they would say, well, okay, we see the inability of the will to choose God or to believe in Christ. And, okay, that's kind of the prevailing doctrine of the church for all these ages and it is taught in Scripture. But aren't there certain doctrines that could be even harmful to people? Some people say, well, you know, if you hold that view, wouldn't that hinder evangelism? If we teach that men and women cannot choose God, even if this is true, don't we destroy the main reason for evangelism? Don't we undercut all the missionary efforts around the world? Isn't it better just to stay quiet about this? It should be good enough that our, our Lord Jesus Christ, if you come at it from this point of view, from his mouth came the Great Commission. Go into all the world and what? Preach the gospel. Teach the gospel. Make disciples. Baptizing them. Right? That's what Jesus Christ said. But out of that same mouth, Jesus Christ said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him out of the same mouth. And see, people try to take those two truths and go, whoa, wait, wait, we got to kind of mush them together. And that's where they get in. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. 
If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. <music>